Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 219 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by a wildlife and nature photographer who spends most of her time leading workshops based out of sea vessels, Lisa LaPointe. Lisa is a naturalist with a huge passion for sea expeditions, wildlife photography, conservation, and education programs designed to spark the same passions in others. She leads workshops with the Moench Workshops team and has a fabulous body of photographic work. Lisa and I discuss a very wide variety of interesting topics this week, so sit back and enjoy. Before we get started, I wanted to remind listeners that we have officially launched and opened submissions for the Natural Landscape Photography Awards. We are proud to be supported by Canon, Shimoda Designs, and Photospeed, and have over $10,000 in prizes to give away to the winners of the competition. We are officially viable as well, so thank you to all of you who have supported the competition already. Listeners can still get a 15% discount by using the code PAIN15, and you don't have to submit entries right away. As long as you get them in prior to August 31st, you're good to go, and you can change your entries at any time up till then. You can learn more by visiting naturallandscapeawards.com. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Lisa LaPointe, it's so great to finally uh, meet you and to have you on the podcast. Yeah, likewise. I'm glad we can make it happen. Yeah, I'm really thankful. I I believe that both Wayne Suggs and uh, Mark Munch recommended you for the show. So those are some people I respect. So I'm glad to finally get to have you here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I hope I can live up to their recommendation. Oh, I'm sure you'll. <laughs> I'm sure you'll be fine. <laughs> well, cool. So, so for you know people that uh, may not be familiar with you and your photography, uh, tell us uh, a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm a photographer with Munch Workshops. Um, I teach workshops uh, around the world, but I also do uh, quite a few other things as well. So, I'm a U.S. Coast Guard licensed captain. Um, and we can get into that a little bit more too. So I took a really circuitous path to, <laughs> to where I'm at, a lot of trial and error, um, but really, really happy with where my career has gone. And I am based in San Diego, uh, which I'm very fortunate to, to have access to a lot of beautiful areas in California here and, and also a lot of the marine areas. So really cool melding of, of uh, a couple of careers here. <laughs> Yeah, let's um wow. Coast Guard. How, so let's how did you get involved in the Coast Guard? Well, interestingly enough, I'm not involved with the Coast Guard per se. Um uh-huh. just have licensure um to okay. operate with them, but interestingly enough, photography brought me into it. So, um I've always been a photographer. Um always loved photography and wanted to get into it professionally, but I think as many of us know, it's not the easiest thing to do. So, I sort of, um, by chance, uh, started working on a ship and found that I could get into wild areas where I could do my photography, I could inspire others with the photography while working, um, and found that I really loved that side of it, really loved uh, the boating side of it and learning that aspect as well. So um, trying to combine those two interests uh, was interesting, but it has actually worked out. And I actually met 
uh, the Munch team while I was working on a ship in Alaska. I was able to join them and combine the two passions. So I do run a lot of workshops for them uh, on ships, a lot of our ship-based uh, expeditions to Antarctica, Galapagos, Alaska, and so forth. So photography brought me uh, to working on the ocean, and working on the ocean brought me to a deeper role in photography. And I couldn't be happier <laughs> with where that has led me. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's funny. It seems to me that uh, being spending a lot of time on a, on a sea-bearing, sea sea sea, what is the word I'm looking for? Seafaring? Uh, Seafaring. Sea you yeah. can tell that I am not an ocean <laughs> person. The sea, a seafaring vessel, there you go. Uh, that, that will take you to some pretty unique places. Yeah, I mean, working on ships, boats, uh, literally gets you off the beaten path. <laughs> right. <laughs> it, it gets you right off the uh, the ground in general. And, you know, for many of the areas that are uh, desirable to be photographing these days, the Arctic, um, Galapagos, Antarctica, um, you know, you really do have to be on a ship. It's the only way to get, you know, between islands um, to remote areas. So. Unless yeah, you, it's a great uh, way for exploring. <laughs> I was gonna say, unless you get one of those jetpacks. Jetpacks, yes. That maybe that's the next thing. Certainly, submarines are the next thing. Helicopters, so right. Perhaps well, jetpacks is <laughs> will be 2024's activity. Well, I, I want to learn a little bit more about your um, non-photographic background in terms of um, your background in in science and the sciences. And so, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what that background is about, and then maybe we can kind of touch on how that intersects uh, with your with your photography. Sure. So, yeah, I definitely took a circuitous path <laughs> to where I am. It, it was a lot of trial and error and trying to figure out uh, which way to go. So I started out in science. Uh, my background is in um, actually neuroscience and biomedical and spent my undergraduate years doing that, actually uh, started medical school and decided that wasn't the path for me. But always alongside this was the photography and an interest in art. And I actually got a minor in uh, art history. So hmm. the two always both interested me. I bounced back and forth for some time before finding a happy medium. Um, and I think I really had a revelation when I was working in a science lab, and it involved a lot of microscopy photography. And I found myself just as interested in capturing really cool photographs under the microscope and working with those, processing those, trying to find the best you know, visual rendition I could of the science, even though that wasn't strictly necessary. <laughs> and I think that really uh, made an impression that you can merge these things, you can meld them, and it would just take some creativity. So I won't say that I uh, definitely got off on the right track right in that moment, but it inspired me to try and find a way to do it. And I think now where I'm able to lecture uh, as a biologist and a naturalist, as well as teaching photography and inspiring people uh, to take an interest in what they're photographing, um, now I have finally found that that good mix. So come to really um, see the art inspire science. Uh, visual language uh, can make us more interested in science, can inspire scientists to take on certain topics. And science informs art. Um, and we can talk about that a little bit more too. And, and then I just also think that you can invent your own path um, in any career that you do. Uh, you can 
find your way to best express who you are and what your interests are. Yeah. It's, it's funny you said uh, using the visual language as a way of making science more accessible, because I think that's one of the biggest, um, I don't, you know, biggest knocks on science and scientists is that they typically use a language that, you know, most people can't really grasp or grapple with in the day-to-day vernacular. And I think that's why a lot of people, you know, when you start talking about climate change or, or based, you know, like viruses and all that kind of stuff, people tune out because they just, you know, it's not fun. It's not sexy. They don't understand it. But I think it's interesting that you've been able to find a way to use the visual arts as a way of connecting people more to the science that you're trying to show them. Yeah, absolutely. That is such a good point. I'm so glad you brought that up because it's it really is true. I mean, people view science as inaccessible and it really is a problem in reaching people and convincing them um, to pay attention to the science. So I very much am striving to do that. And there are a lot of ways that science is trying to uh, connect with the general populace. Um, certainly science, citizen science programs that get people involved in uh, recording data. And, you know, photography plays a big role in that too. You know, there are a number of programs, for example, um, whale watches where people do a lot of photography. They can submit their images um, to the scientists and we can learn a lot more about these animals. So another cool way that the two interact. But I think the point you made is, is just so important that we're creating ways for this to be accessible, to be inspiring. Um, and to to bridge these gaps between disciplines. Yeah. What would you say uh, your process is uh, for using your background in science uh, to inform your photography and to help teach people about the natural world that they're capturing? What does that look like? (laughs) Well, it looks like different things in different situations, certainly. Um, I definitely lecture in more formal ways. Um, So a lot of these expedition ships do, even the ones that we're doing photographic workshops on, there's always time for uh, biologists, naturalists lectures as well, Um, inspiring people to use their photography for citizen science programs is another way. Um, But also just learning about your subject um, can produce better photographs. So the more you understand the habits, the habitats, the behaviors of your subject, the more in-depth you go about their natural history, the better your photos are going to become. and the more meaningful they'll be to you. You know, when you look at that and you you truly get what's happening in that image, it's it's going to be a more potent image for you mm-hmm. and yeah, your viewer. And, yeah, and I, I feel like I'm I'm assuming you're more talking about you know, wildlife uh, when you talk about you know your 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 subjects, um, but I think you could make the same case for. Um, you know, plant life or forests, um, pretty much anything in, in, that we can find in nature. I think the more you get to understand it, the more intimate you become with it and the better your photographs of that subject are going to become. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, it is more applicable to wildlife. Uh, wildlife is certainly more complicated, but as you said, you know, it's applicable to landscape as well. Knowing some basic astrology and the phases of the moon and uh, starscapes, knowing when certain plant life is going to be blooming or changing into fall colors, understanding those aspects of of the landscape and nature around you are are going to be useful as well. So it, it 
permeates through all levels of nature photography. I think the more you understand, the more curiosity you have, the better your photography will become. Yeah. So you've, you've kind of already touched on this a little bit, but um, I think that listeners will be interested in becoming a little bit more inspired by kind of what you have to say about your ability to find a career at the intersection of art and science, because I think that's something that a lot of people, you know, that's kind of like the the dream, so to speak, you know, and I, I think a lot of people might be interested in learning about, you know, perhaps what is a mindset they need to have, or what are some practical ways in which people could try to do that for themselves? Okay. Um, well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get asked this question a lot. How did you get to where you are? And, you know, the biggest thing I'll say is persistence. Um, but the job market these days, as everyone is becoming aware, has moved less from these traditional roles, defined roles that, you know, you can put in a you know, curriculum vitae right at the top, you know, there's, we don't have titles so much anymore. It's, it's kind of designing your own path. And I had somebody say to me once, you know, this path isn't going to be laid out for you. You're going to have to be like water flowing between rocks in a stream. You know, you're just going to have to go this way and see if that works and then go this way a little bit. But um, I think just being honest with yourself, evaluating where you're uh, passions lie where your strengths lie and then trying to put those forward and just trying, you know, just moving forward. You can't make adjustments unless, <laughs> until you're moving forward and knock on doors, go after what you love. And then just course correct is, is, you know, you encounter things that you really like or don't like about what you're doing. But I think just understanding that we don't have to be quite as reliant on the traditional job structure anymore and that freelance uh, work is very valid these days. Um, there's been quite a market for what I do as the expedition industry has expanded. Um, we're moving more into these areas and, and there's a desire to impress on people the need to um, think about conservation, to think about the areas they're visiting, uh, not just be a tourist, but to be an actual traveler. So I guess that brings me to, to looking at the trends too. Um, staying on top of the field you're interested in and, and just going for it, knocking on doors and eventually one's going to open. If it's your passion, you'll, you'll find a way. You had uh, mentioned earlier that you have different strengths that have helped you along the way. What would you say some of the more important strengths that you've been able to leverage and, and why have they been so important? Uh, certainly one of them has been a go for it attitude. <laughs> I got that from my dad. He believed there were there are no barriers to uh, trying, at least. I mean, obviously, there's all kinds of barriers out there for us as individuals and, and collectively, but just continuing to try persistence um, has been a strength for me, not giving up, um, and also a curiosity. I'm willing to, to try anything once and uh, to push myself a little bit out of my comfort zone uh, for the sake of new experiences. So that's, that's gone a long ways because once you take a step forward and get into something, you know, you form connections, you form more interests, you learn more, and that allows you to take the next step. Um, oh gosh, <laughs> what else? Uh, my ability to be away from home for long periods of time has certainly been helpful. Um, being kind of a, a global nomad or global citizen um, in this field is, is definitely useful. So can mean being away from home a lot, but 
you know, you kind of form your community around the world, which is a good skill to learn too. Yeah, I'm curious, have you have you had to grapple with that internally in terms of, you know, being conflicted about that lifestyle versus perhaps a more traditional lifestyle? Oh my gosh, you have no idea. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I There are sacrifices that need to be made. I mean, I am on the road 100 to 200 days a year, depending on uh, the contracts and what emphasis I'm putting on something at a certain time. But um, you find your community, you know, when you work this this industry isn't huge, uh, so you f- you find your community and you do uh, make friends and and family along the way. But you know, I haven't had the opportunity to have a family um, or even a lot of long term relationships. So as I move into my forties, that's definitely something you know that's becoming more important to me is is establishing myself a little bit more in my home community. Um, getting to spend more time with uh, friends and family. So finding that balance is definitely a challenge, but uh, that's something that I'm working on right now. And part of that has been finding local projects, uh, local volunteer um, efforts, uh, conservation projects near me. And that has helped me to move a little bit more into conservation photography as well in the sense that I'm spending more time in one place working on, you know, a set project. So I guess that was a long way of saying, you know, yes, it, it, it is difficult to meld these two things, I think, especially as a woman and uh, sacrifices are required. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm guessing somewhere in your path, there's been some pushback, like, that's not what you're supposed to do as a woman, you know, like, like you're supposed to settle down and have kids and, you know, and you're like, no, nah, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it definitely goes through my head, right. Am I making the right path? But I, I have had people aggressively say to me, um, you shouldn't be doing this. This, this is not the path or, you know, you're in your thirties now it's time to quit fooling around and settle down and find a real job. And, uh, fortunately I had parents that, uh, were very supportive and, um, didn't try to push me one way or another. And, um, let me kind of work out this path. But I definitely did try in the beginning with medical school um, to walk a more traditional path, and it just didn't work. I think sometimes your heart just tells you this isn't right for me and you have to listen. And, and that's, been, that's been my North Star, I suppose, is every time I try to live a more traditional path, uh, my heart wants to be back out there, and, and I've learned to listen to that. Good for you. I love that. Not not easy though. <laughs> no, of course not. Um, we all want we all want it all in life and and you know some people do seem to manage to have it all but I think more of us have to make choices and ultimately you just have to make the choices that feel the best that feel the most right to you. I love it. What what has it been like to to work on ships for such a large part of your career? I imagine that can become on one hand quite liberating and on the other hand, quite constraining. So I'm curious to hear about your experience with that. Well, you definitely give up the concept of privacy (laughs) (laughs) altogether. Um, But one thing I like about working on ships is a sense of teamwork. So everybody has a role um, that's usually very defined, uh, very kind of military pattern of things um, out of necessity because people need to be ready um, in their role and well-trained in their role and well-practiced. But at the same time, we all help each other. And there's a lot of crossover um, 
it can be exhausting working on ships. It's it's 24-7. So you learn to help each other and, and compensate for each other when someone needs a break or a rest. And it's just really wonderful teamwork. And then, you know, as far as the workshops are concerned, those are shorter durations on ships. But my background of working on ships um, helps me to keep people comfortable, um, mm-hmm. help them deal with some of the limitations of working on ships, but also get them excited about what they have to offer. So it's Again, it's been a really nice overlap uh, between that and the the teaching of the workshops. And how much time are you spending uh, on a normal year uh, out in the ocean? <laughs> a normal year. I can't <laughs> right? remember what that's like. <laughs> um, you know, I'm shifting more from ship-based operations to doing the workshops. And those are often on ships. I've sort of specialized in that to some degree. Mm-hmm. But I would say it's probably... 60% workshops now, um, maybe 40% uh, working in ships in a, in a role more as a naturalist. Um, and that's a good balance for me. I, I, I really enjoy the photography aspect of, of bringing people along. So I, I'm definitely leaning that way more and more towards the future. Awesome. Um, cool. Let's talk a little bit more about photography and conservation because you touched on that a little bit earlier. And I'm just going to ask a yes or no question, but I'm hoping we can dive into this because it's, it's a question I was recently asked on a panel, um, over on out of Chicago. And I think it's a, it's kind of an interesting, I don't know. It's hard to wrap our heads around, I think sometimes, but do you believe that photography can inspire conservation? And if so, how? Yeah, I do. I think, um, showing people beautiful images, is certainly inspiring, uh, especially for people who uh, haven't uh, taken the initiative or maybe don't have the option to travel to these wild places. You know, it it is true, the, the famous quote, um, that in the end, we conserve what we love and we love what we understand and we understand what we're taught. So I think images play a role in that teaching, that inspiring. Um, but beyond that, I think we can use images for storytelling. We can illuminate some of the conservation issues that we're facing these days um, and get people inspired. Have you had any experiences where perhaps somebody on one of these workshops or t- tours is skeptical about something you know, from their personal viewpoint that you've been able to shift through your teaching and and through the actual engagement through photography? You know, I don't know if skeptical is the right word. Um, Maybe just um, uninformed or unaware. Mm -hmm. Um, I I haven't encountered a lot of people who are not receptive to learning more or disagree with me or or don't see the merit. Um, But a lot of times people will come on a workshop um, and not have a clear understanding of what it is they're going to photograph or what the environment or ecology in the place they are is. And I'm able to fill out the picture for them. You know, if, for example, in the Galapagos, everyone kind of has a basic idea of Darwin and, and the theory of evolution and, and how the Galapagos have played a role. But when you actually get there, um, you can fill them in a lot more. They can see the finches, they can see the mockingbirds, they can see the tortoises, um, and they're much more receptive to to learning about it. So we'll do little naturalist lectures and I, you know, probably to the point of annoyance in the field and I'm, I'm always <laughs> childlike of my enthusiasm of pointing things out and talking about them. And, um, 
a lot of people have come home from these trips much more engaged with that place, uh, sometimes making substantial donations or um, joining awareness efforts. I know in Antarctica, we have programs uh, where we inspire people to become Antarctic ambassadors. And we'll even give them small lectures that they can take home to talk to their family, um, maybe present at their child's classroom. So there's a lot of opportunities to, to get people interested. And, and generally, they're pretty receptive. How have you seen some of the places that you photograph change over time? Yeah, that's a that's a major issue right now, especially as um, tourism is increasing. People, um, you know, economically and from an interest standpoint, more and more travel is happening um, into some of these wild places. We're not getting more of them, so we are seeing use issues, and some countries are managing this better than the others. I think the Galapagos is doing a pretty good job, for example. Um, in Antarctica, we are starting to see effects of tourism, and this can range from, you know, introduction of invasive species, especially with climate change as areas are warming, uh, the environment's becoming more receptive to invasive species getting a, a hold there, to just the wear and tear that comes with more and more and more tourism to an area. And there are a lot of ships, uh, expedition ships, going in into uh, use both for the Arctic and the Antarctic, um, just in the last few years. So we're going to see that that volume increase exponentially. And I think we need to, to be cognizant, to be aware and, and understand how these impacts are playing out. But I don't think that uh, takes away from the merits and the benefits of ecotourism. It's just something we have to continue to, to be aware of. You know, along those lines, what can we do or how can we balance the conservation value of our photography versus the you know cost of visiting these places? Well, I think what we touched on before, um, learning about your subject as much as you can, um, especially with wildlife, knowing the life cycle of the wildlife through the year. For example, is this a sensitive breeding period um, where maybe you need to either not visit or, or visit in a way that's um, less of an impact or, or more respectful to the animal in question? And, you know, that's the same for, for wild areas, too. I know in California we had um, a poppy super bloom a couple of years ago, and the entire area was overrun with people getting, you know, selfies and that sort of thing. And there were trails uh, they could have followed, but they just trampled right through the poppies. So, you know, taking the responsibility ourselves as photographers to educate ourselves, um, to make good choices, but also taking the time to educate others that, you know, may not understand the impacts they're having. Um, we, we just need to be responsible. We need to take that upon ourselves to, to keep the areas we love healthy. One, one thing I'm hearing more and more photographers ask me about and kind of talk about openly in terms of, you know, just not having the right answer or not knowing what to do is, or, or on the other end, some people having very, very passionate views on, um, is kind of the, the idea of, you know, air travel in, for the purpose of, you know, getting to certain places to make photographs. And um, it's just one thing I feel like we're going to have to grapple with more and more is, you know, what is our impact on the planet in the pursuit of photography? And is the photography that we're capturing, does that outweigh those environmental impacts that 
we could potentially be having through, you know, carbon output and things like that. Is that something you've had to personally grapple with or something you're thinking about? Or It's something I think about constantly, um, especially given that a lot of our workshops are in very far flung, far flung places. Um, and I don't have the answers. I wish I did. It, it's something that I personally struggle with, um, my, my impact, and I try to make up for it in other ways and other aspects of my life. I, I compensate um, with environmental aspects there, but there's no question that, that flying has a massive impact. And I do think we have to weigh that with the benefits of ecotourism as well. I mean, certainly flying contributes to uh, climate change and that's a severe threat right now, but ecotourism brings a lot of good things to the area as well. And if it's managed well, um, Certainly, I think the benefits can outweigh the negatives, uh, bringing money into these economies that can use that uh, to preserve wild areas, to pay rangers. Um, certainly, we've seen during this pandemic that, um, you know, some animals have benefited, some areas have benefited, that's indisputable, but also in other areas, poaching um, and other destructive activities have have gone up, you know, a hundredfold. And, and even there are some parks in Africa that are offering, you know, more hunting concessions, um, because they can't, they don't have ecotourism now to support their populations, um, of wildlife and their parks. So everything's a balance. Everything in life is a balance. And I think being cognizant of these issues and taking action where we can goes a long way. Um, certainly there are carbon offsets, which aren't a perfect solution, but they're better than nothing. Um, and then, you know, selecting operators, selecting companies, lodges um, that do your research and see if they're, you know, giving back to the communities, taking conservation initiatives, um, trying to offset their impact, being a, a responsible consumer, just like with anything else. But there are no perfect answers, certainly. No, there's not. You know, I've, it's funny, I brought this up a few times on the podcast or on various forums and inevitably you get it people on one end or the other that are vocal about it in terms of we shouldn't be flying at all anymore versus people that are like, who cares? Um, the, the earth is going to die anyway. <laughs> like, let's just, you know, YOLO type stuff, like whatever. So it's, it's hard. It's a hard thing to talk about uh, rat rationally, I feel like. And so I appreciate your answer because it, I feel like it does offer some, concrete solutions without definitively saying you should or shouldn't do something. Yeah. It's all a balance. You got to find ways, you know, if, if this is your, if this is your thing doing this international travel, you got to find ways in other aspects of your life to, to balance that. I definitely think there's a middle ground before between uh, not flying at all and uh, not caring at all. But there are very documented benefits to ecotourism, and I, I think it plays a role in conservation for sure. Um, and there are documented benefits, you know, scientifically measured aspects of educational programs on ships, at lodges. Um, when we make the effort um, to educate people, to inspire them, to send them back to their communities with this information and this experience, we are benefiting nature. We, we can measure that. We are changing the way people view their natural resources. And I, I think that's a huge benefit. 
flying certainly isn't the only contributor to climate change. So no doubt Con- consumerism is probably the biggest one. Yeah. Balance. We need balance. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, getting back to more of the photography side of things, and I know you touched on this a little bit, but I was hoping you go into a little bit uh, more detail because it's something I have a huge interest in myself is, um, you know, how, how can we become an ambassador for the subjects that we photograph and, and why is that important? Well, um, many of us go to these wild places, I think, my, myself included, and we experience it ourselves. We take wonderful photos and then those photos sit on our hard drive <laughs> for long periods of time until a pandemic crawls around and we finally go back and, and work on them. And I think part of being an ambassador is is using those photos, you know, get them out to the public, share them with people, um, express your enthusiasm for these wild places write if you're a good writer, um, publish, get it out there. And if not that, then social media. And again, the more you learn about the subject and the more you can um, write captions uh, that educate, the better. Um, I think that's the best way to be an ambassador, to, to bring your enthusiasm home and to share it. And whenever possible, again, to contribute to these citizen science projects, there's more and more and more of them out there from cloud surveys to uh, calibrate NASA's equipment to uh, studying the movements of whales to songbird migrations. Um, there's Whatever you're interested in, there's there's so much out there to, to contribute your work to. So you're, you're saying we could be an ambassador for nature and not an ambassador for uh, a brand? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it just, it just takes some effort. I mean, I, you know, Instagram culture from, from what I can see, I'm probably wading into controversial territory here, but it, it does we, seem we, to glor. <laughs> we never, we never do that on this show. Ever. It does. It does seem to, you know, oftentimes glorify the creator and not the place where these stunning pictures are taken. You know, we've all seen that some of these places that get um, highlighted over and over on social media are getting decimated um, for the benefit of one person, one influencer. And I think we need to shift um, that culture of personality to a culture of, of place and, and not just getting there for two minutes, taking the picture and leaving, but um, going a little bit more in depth into our photography, learning more about a place, telling its story a little bit better. Um, I, yeah. I love that. Yeah, giving, giving value to the place, not just to the, the image. I love that. Yeah, it's it's frustrating for me because I've tried to have these conversations with some people about, you know, like, hey, you're just taking a bunch of people to a place that probably can't handle that much visitation, especially if all of those people are then going to take their friends there. Um, and often the response I get is, well, you know, people before me did it, so why can't I? Um, and it's it's just incredibly frustrating to see the selfishness that is happening with some photographers and their approach to, to, to workshops and to, you know, I have nothing against workshops, but let's be thoughtful about this, you know? Yeah. And we very much try to do that at Munch. You know, we're deliberately not going to some of the more heavily traveled uh, to the point of being damaged places. We're always seeking to um, go to places that, aren't sustaining that damage both for the the place but also for the photographer right 
Um, we've all seen so many images from these iconic places, but there's so much beauty out there. So, you know, Wayne has been great lately about uh, scouting out and coming up with some new uh, destinations and, and many of my colleagues as well. So that's, that's something we can do, but also just taking responsibility. I mean, you, you don't need to leave as big an impact on these places as is as, as sometimes done. Um, there's definitely ways to, to, to do better. We all need to do better. I mean, we have a responsibility not to ruin what we love. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there's a specific location I have in mind in my backyard that people like to go to every fall. And there's a place right off the road that can easily sustain lots of people where you could take people and get a really good photograph. And there's another place that you have to hike about two miles on mostly untrailed terrain to get kind of more of an iconic shot that everyone wants. And I'm seeing every year more and more people taking groups of people up there that it just, and then sharing it on social media and bragging about how amazing it is. And I get, I get all that. Like I like to show people my photography too, but when you try to talk to them about, Hey man, maybe don't take groups of people to that spot. I don't think that's and the answer I get is, Oh, it was in a magazine. Like everyone knows how to get there. Everyone knows about it now. What's who cares? You know, and it's, as someone who's making money off of these places, you probably should care. <laughs> yeah, and everybody wants the iconic shot. I mean, there's there's no way around that. Our clients do. Um, but once we get that shot, we try to encourage, you know, use some creativity. Use your ability to spend time in a place. Sit with it for a while. Find the shot that's going to be more creative, more unique, more original. And in the end... Those are the ones that are going to catch people's eye anyways. We're so inundated with visual um, you know, imagery on social media, especially these days, that it almost loses its impact until you show something that hasn't been seen, that hasn't been overdone. And maybe it's more subtle, but it's going to catch people's eye. And, and I think we need to move more in that direction of finding those subtleties. But that's certainly not where things are at right now, you know, um, but you we know, need to try. Yeah, well, one thing that I see brought up over and over again from my colleagues is, um, and especially in relation to competitions or quote-unquote popularity, is you see kind of people copying other people's photographs, you know, like, oh, I need, and I know as a workshop leader, I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you have clients that are asking you, like, can you take me to get this photo? Can you t- I want to know where this person got this photo. Um, have you have you seen people doing that on your workshops? I mean, to an extent, yeah. None of us are immune from wanting that iconic shot. But again, maybe I've just gotten really, really lucky with our workshop participants, or hopefully our our culture is inspiring them to be this way. But they're very receptive to trying something new, to learning something new. Um, so we we try to find that balance, right? I mean, we'll we'll get some iconic shots, but then we're going to encourage them to to look deeper. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I was more kind of thinking about, uh, I don't know if this is the right word for this, but like, is there an ethical consideration about copying other people's compositions or does it matter? (laughs) You know, I don't know that I'm the one necessarily to go too deep on this because I'm a wildlife photographer. It's, it's pretty hard to copy someone's compositions, but yeah, yeah, you totally. know, you're probably better equipped to answer that from the landscape 
um, perspective because that is an issue. You know, weather is going to change and conditions are going to change to some extent, but those iconic views are are going to be there. Um, so I guess I would throw that one back at you <laughs> in landscape photography. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting because I think when it comes to like an iconic shot, I I don't think that is necessarily as important of a thing. You know, it's like everyone knows it it's like it doesn't really belong to anyone or whatever but there are very specific unique scenes that certain photographers have kind of i don't know like they have photographs that are kind of just known for like that's a from a very specific spot and like you have to really 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 try hard to copy it like you have to go out of your way to copy it you know what i mean for example uh there's a aerial photograph in near um Hanksville, Utah, mm-hmm. that Alex Noriega won International Landscape Photographer of the Year with. He, he called it Mother Brain. And now it's like everyone who owns a drone goes out to this very specific spot and wants the exact replicated image. Um, and he even went out of his way to a, for another location that's near there to where he actually changed the color balance of one of the rocks just to like see if people would go out of their way to copy him to that detail (laughs) and people do like people go out of their way they'll take the one rock in the scene the boulder and they'll change the color of it so that it looks just like his shot and it's it's just bizarre to me that uh people are go that far out of their way to get every last detail and then they present the work as if it's some kind of genius thing that they found on their own or figured out on their own that they created right so in my mind I personally don't think anyone owns a composition necessarily, but if you're going to go to that level of detail to copy somebody, you should probably give them some credit for inspiring you. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, a lot of us in our learning process, we begin by copying to some extent, right? Sure. We have artists that we admire and uh, whose style we like. And one of the earliest stages of learning is, is copying, but I would hope that every photographer would strive to go beyond that, even without ethics and regard, just in their own personal development. Um, I, I I wouldn't find making an exact copy of someone else's work to be a satisfying outcome. And and I would hope that others will get to that point too in their learning curve. I mean, that I completely agree with the ethics, but even beyond that, like let's let's try to move let's try to move forward with our learning. Yeah, and you know I've. I'm not saying I'm immune to it. I've I've certainly sought out other people's images just because I wanted to see what they saw. And um, but to your point, at some point, I feel like it's important to break free of that and try try something else for yourself and see what you can create that you can put your own stamp on. Yeah, inspiration, not imitation, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Or if you are going to imitate, at least give credit where credit is due. I guess absolutely. Yeah. All right. So, Fortunately, we don't deal with that quite as much in the wildlife world. If you can get an animal to pose in exactly the same way twice, then you've got other superpowers. So we're a little bit more immune to that. But, you know, style choices and um, locations where animals are in abundance or where they're exhibiting specific behaviors, you know, people do try to really frequent those those places, sometimes to the, the detriment of things. So. Yeah, I've even heard stories of um, like wildlife wildlife photographer of the year, where people will have been on the same workshop together, like photographing a grizzly bear or 
penguins or you know some something in the wild together like you know lined up with their tripods and they all submit the exact same photograph to the competition and and then they like they all get finalists they're they get selected as finalists and then the judges are like this is the exact same photo what the heck are we what do i do right and it's it's just interesting that um i don't know to me it's like if why would you submit a photograph that everyone else that was around you got the exact same photo to a competition is kind of strange to me too. Yeah. And that is an issue with workshops is, you know, to a large extent you are photographing the same thing, but um, we encourage people to have a little bit of independence. You know, it's, it's rare that we have six or eight photographers lined up shooting the same subject. You know, when we go to the Galapagos, we'll, we'll roam about a little and we're checking in with people, but they're finding their own, subjects. And it never ceases to amaze me how even when people are photographing the same subject, they do put their own take on it. And Mm -hmm. I think that comes from sitting with the subject, trying different perspectives, which we very much encourage. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm always amazed to see how different they are. So my experience isn't that everybody's lined up getting the same shot. It's that we're encouraging and teaching each other different ways of looking at the same thing to get individualized results. Yeah. And just to be clear, I I, uh, I only use these examples and say that say those stories the way I do to evoke a passionate response from from <laughs> you, not necessarily to put down other people. It's it's more. Oh, just and to I like, didn't take it that way. <laughs> yeah, but no, I mean there are people out there that do take it that way, and that's that's not my intention. It's it's more just to like spark an interesting conversation. <laughs> One of the great things about workshops, in my mind, and getting to teach. Um, at this job I love so much is learning from our clients, our guests as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. I am continually amazed and impressed and learn from the way people see things that, you know, they take their own personal backgrounds and styles and put that spin on it. And it's, it's so inspiring for me. Yeah. Do you guys uh, do image sharing as a group? And then you get to see what people came up with and you're like, wow. That's yeah. Amazing. That's a huge part. It's a huge part of our workshops. We we make that a priority, yeah. Um, both so that we can give uh, very specific feedback, but also so that people can learn from each other. and And I think these group settings, people just learn at an exponential rate. Um, and it's it's cool to see the collaboration and people teaching each other um, as well. You know, it's 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 humbling for us as instructors to realize yeah. how much talent um, there is. And when you bring that together in a group setting, it the learning is just it's so cool. I love it. I love it to is. see it. I love to be part of it. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, cool. So let's uh let's talk a little bit about storytelling. You know, I think okay. for me, storytelling is an important aspect of nature and landscape photography that I'm just now starting to understand and try to pre-visualize to some degree. I'm curious for you, uh, what are some of your processes uh, for storytelling in your images? And, and why is, is that an important part of your work or your approach? Yeah, I'm with you and that this is a relatively new concept for me. So, you know, especially in a workshop setting, there's a lot of emphasis on getting a beautiful picture. Um, and more and more, I, you know, going back to our conversation before is how can photography help conservation? More and more, I want my photographs to do more than that, to be more than just beautiful. I want them uh, to make a difference. And so, as I've explored conservation more and more, uh, conservation photography, I've realized the importance of storytelling. Um, 
and, and what that means to me has, has evolved. I mean, obviously we can tell stories with a series of images. Um, we can tell stories in a single image, but I guess I just keep trying to push myself to move beyond the pretty picture, to, to go deeper, um, to see more and to, sh- and to try and show that. And a lot of that has involved pre-visualizing, um, thinking ahead of this is the interaction or this is the story that I want to tell. And then thinking about how I can make that happen. Um, and that's hard when you're shooting wildlife in the wild, but you can look for these moments when you've pre-visualized it, you can look for them and, and, and to be ready. Um, and it, it's evolving in my mind as well, what it means. But, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of evidence. Well, we know that our ability to understand stories through visual imagery uh, far precedes our ability to tell stories through language. Um, it's a very primitive aspect of our brains. And I think we really lock on to that, that visual storytelling. It's a very powerful tool. So I'm still learning, um, but it's, it's the direction I want to go with my work. Yeah. Have you found that the storytelling sometimes comes after the fact, you know, when you're looking through your images that you perhaps created a, a, in a process of mostly kind of, you know, reaction to what you're seeing. And then you look at it later and it's like, oh, interesting. There's something happening here that that's greater than what I had seen originally. For sure. And that's usually how it goes, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but again, that same process of, of understanding your subject and letting stories um, come to you will help inform that process as well. The after, you know, both the shooting and the after effect editing. Um, has more of a chance to come together that way if you've thought through what you're trying to convey. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. yeah, usually it it does come largely largely afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What and are learning? Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to ask uh, if you have any clear examples of of where the pre visualization of a story came together and what was the story you were trying to tell and how did you do that through the image. Yeah, there's one in particular that stands out in my mind because um, it is where I made a conscious effort to to definitely do this, to challenge myself to do this. And it was in the Galapagos, and I wanted to show um, the relationship between red-footed boobies and the frigate birds um, that nest together in very close proximity. But it's a wary relationship because the frigate birds will steal uh, chicks from the boobies' nests. Um, And so I wanted to show that relationship and and how do you do that? And I ended up getting down low with a wide angle lens and I've got the booby with sort of a concerned look as much as a bird can show a concerned look. Wide angle in the foreground, looking up at this frigate bird flying over. And it took a, a lot of tries, but in the end, I feel like I accomplished what I was trying to accomplish. And that was an incredibly satisfying feeling to be able to do that in one image. I find often that something a lot of people don't think about is trying to tell a story through multiple images, you know, like in a project or, you know, maybe a series of photos like six to 10 or six to 15 images that might, you know, individually the photos might not stand on their own, but collectively they tell a very interesting story. And I think I'm thinking about a lot of the work that people would do for National Geographic, for example, you know, it's their you know, I don't, you look at some of the photos, you're like, oh, it's, it's a pretty cool photo. But then like together, 
um, through the lens of someone who's got an editorial eye, they tell a very interesting story. And I was always interested in the back page of National Geographic. I'm obsessed with National Geographic ever since I was a little kid, but the back page would often be outtakes from an article that didn't get published in the article. And it might be a spectacular photo, but it didn't tell the story. It didn't pull its weight in that story. And so it was eliminated. And that was sometimes shocking to me. Like, how can this not be in there? It's so good. But that wasn't the emphasis. Um, so yeah, National Geographic does a great job with that, obviously. Um, but the more I've been delving into this topic, the more I'm learning that there is a way to do this the right way. <laughs> it's, not, it's not just putting a bunch of pictures together and, and hoping for the best. There's certain shots that help you with your storyline, you know, getting the, the wide angle shot, the hero shot, the protagonist, you know, much like video editing or writing, um, there are formats to do this. So I would encourage anyone who's interested in, in taking their work in this direction to start studying storyboard layouts, um, much as videographers do to, to help them tell that story. And it occurs to me that in order to do that, you have to have an idea of the story you're trying to tell before you take the photograph. Yeah. And I think that's another thing that I have learned and didn't necessarily recognize before I started going down this road is how much research goes into that process. Um, mm -hmm. More even than taking the images or the editing of them is doing the research, learning the background so you can even find the story. Um, I've been trying to, to do that more with scientists, um, learning about their work uh, and what questions they're asking so that you, you know ahead of time kind of where you're going with this. You're not just shooting random pictures and hoping for the best. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I've heard people talk about their pursuit of nature photography as either being someone who's a hunter or somebody who's a, a gatherer. And the difference is like when you're a hunter, you're, you're out with the very purposeful intent of finding a specific photo versus where you're a gatherer, you're just out experiencing nature and then reacting to what it is you find. And I personally find both approaches valid, um, but often I think going in with one preconceived format versus the other is going to change the type of images you create. I like that metaphor a lot. And I agree with you that I think we need to have aspects of both. I mean, certainly if you go in entirely as the hunter, you might miss opportunity um, or you might miss subtleties because you're so tunnel vision. Mm -hmm. um, but if you just go as the gatherer, you're lacking focus and maybe nothing ever does come together. So I think going in with an objective, but remaining open to serendipity is, is probably the way to go. Agreed. Just like everything else, finding the balance. <laughs> yeah, and f figuring out which approach works better for the way that you're wired as a human. <laughs> yeah. 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 Not all of us have the same objective, obviously. True. That's very true. Beautiful things about photography is it serves different purposes for, for all of us. Well said. Well, Lisa, tell us tell us about uh, tell us your ebook that you're working on. <laughs> in progress, I understand. <laughs> it's in progress. I keep thinking it's done and then it becomes in progress status again. But I am um, writing an ebook on photographing Antarctica. Um, and I'm just really, really enthusiastic about the topic. So it keeps getting longer and longer and adding lots of cool naturalist facts. Um, but hopefully we'll be done in the next month and um, available on my website. So something I'm very excited about on a topic that I'm, I'm very excited about. And um, I hope that many of your listeners do get a chance to go to, 
to Antarctica at some point. It's an astounding place to, to photograph for those fortunate to go. Well, and maybe by the time this episode airs, it'll be ready to, to be released. <laughs> well, I've got a page on the book and I'll um have a I'll have a sign up sign up option on there if anyone would like one going forward. Hopefully in the next couple of weeks I'll get it done. Well, I just hopefully maybe just lit a little bit of fire under you. <laughs> I need it. I need it. I need to I need to learn when to say I'm done. I, I oh, no it's problem. the hardest. It's the <laughs> hardest part. Especially if you like the subject and you like to write. It's like how do you yeah. know when you're done, right? Yep, that's a never-ending issue. I think for all of us, people can relate, especially the perfectionists among us. Yeah. Um, so, and then also tell us what you have coming up with uh, with the workshops through Munch. Yeah, we have a lot coming up. So we are uh, cautiously optimistic that things will be getting back in gear soon here. So we've got a number of U.S. workshops uh, going over the summer, and then we're going to hopefully foray back into some international workshops uh, by the fall. And then we have a full schedule planned um, into 2022. So um, lots of new workshops, new and exciting stuff, both from my end and, and that of my colleagues. So I would encourage people who are getting anxious to travel to, to go check us out. We're already uh, substantially booked for 2022. We're seeing, seeing the enthusiasm for travel starting again and lots of cool offerings. So if the uh, workshop idea appeals to you, and um, I think it can can be an advantage for anyone, no matter their skill set, come join us. Brilliant. All right. Well, lastly, curious, uh, who um, would you recommend for the podcast? I am going to recommend Taylor Stone. She's one of my new colleagues at Munch Workshops, and she shares my passion for uh, combining art and science. She's actually working on her PhD right now on uh, climate change and the needs of uh, the indigenous communities in Greenland um, and using her photography to highlight those issues and, um, as you said, bridge the gap between science and, and the layman on these topics. So I think, I think she'll have a lot to say on, on that same connection. Awesome. And then I think you were going to put a plug out there for our friend Greg Vaughn too. <laughs> Greg as well. Yep. If you haven't. Haven't gotten a chance to nail down Greg yet. He's he's always on the move, it seems. But um, another very accomplished landscape photographer and writer and uh, book author and adventurer who yep. um, has a, a great deal of experience um, in the Pacific Northwest and just all around great guy. Awesome, good deal. I love my colleagues. <laughs> hey, you know, you've, I'm sure you've I'm sure you've formed a, a nice little bond with them. Yeah, we have a great team. So. Very cool. Well, Lisa, I'm sure they'll, they'll recommend a few more. So yeah, we'll, I know. We'll all get on here. <laughs> right. And then you guys will have to send me like some beer in the mail or something. <laughs> that could be doable. Cool. Oh, I guess that's not legal by the way, but whatever. Um, <laughs> I, one of my, one of my listeners actually tried to send me beer and he got caught at the post office. Anyway, long story. <laughs> uh, yeah, we well, Lisa, this has been, a lot of fun. Yep, likewise. Thank you, Matt. Well, thanks again to Lisa for joining me on the podcast today and keep up the amazing work. I personally love your approach of pairing your passion with nature with education to help others see the value in the places and subjects we so love as photographers. 
Please check out Lisa's great work by visiting the show notes or her website at lisalapointephoto.com. Also, I wanted to remind listeners that we have a club over on Clubhouse, the popular audio-based social media app now available on Android. On our club, we have weekly after parties hosted by listeners. Thank you, Bree Stockwell and Jen Grand and Michael Torkildson. The idea is to provide a platform for listeners to engage with each other after each show to have a conversation. On occasion, both me and the guest will make appearances as well. So if that sort of thing interests you, search for our club on Clubhouse or look for the link in the show notes. If you enjoyed our conversation today, you can get even more on the bonus episode over on Patreon. And speaking of which, I would like to take a moment to thank a couple of our newest patrons. Thanks to John Norris, Tracy Babbitt, Daniel Wood, Zoe Pamintuin, and Forrest Dow for your generous support of the show. It really does help keep me motivated to produce new episodes for all of you. And also thanks to David Connor for increasing your pledge. You rock, sir. You too can support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash fstop and listen. And I promise that I'll get rid of all this echo. I just moved into a new house and I need to soundproof this room. So I do apologize for that. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.